0: Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, your Infectious Disease Society of America Guidelines host. Welcome to this edition of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the clinical practice guidelines for clostridium difficile infection in adults and children, the 2017 update. Uh, C. diff infection is defined by the presence of symptoms, usually diarrhea, and either a stool test that is positive for uh, C difficile toxins, detection of toxigenic C difficile or colonoscopic or pathologic findings revealing pseudomembranous colitis. C difficile infection is the most commonly recognized cause of infectious diarrhea in healthcare settings and was the most common cause of overall pathogen responsible for hospital-acquired infections, accounting for 12% of all hospital-acquired infections. In addition, there's been an increase in the incidence of C. diff in the community. Although C. difficile rates have declined a lot in England and across Europe since their peak in 2010, rates have plateaued at historic highs in the United States since about 2010, In fact, recent estimates suggest the United States burden of C. difficile infection is close to half a million infections annually, and it's associated with 15,000 to 30,000 deaths each year. Among the two-thirds of patients who were uh, concurrently or recently inpatients, 37% had hospital onset of their infections, 36% had onset when they were in a long-term care facility after discharge, and 28% had their onset of uh, C. diff. diarrhea in the community after a recent discharge from a healthcare facility. Among the third of patients that have community-associated clostridium difficile infection, over 80% of the case, cases had recent contact with a medical facility, so that in total, over 90% of C. difficile infections are related to having received health care. The guidelines discuss infection surveillance, control in the hospital, as well as pediatric infections, but for the podcast today, we're going to restrict our discussion to the diagnosis and treatment of adult patients. Joining us today is one of the co-chairs of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. L. Clifford McDonald. Dr. McDonald is Associate Director for, the Scien- for Science in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. McDonald. Thank you, Neil. Let's start out by discussing routes of transmission and characteristics that uh, increase the risk for C. diff infection. Dr. McDonald? Sure, Neil. Um, C. diff is transmitted uh, uh,
1: primarily patient to patient. With that said, uh, the environment certainly plays a role. Uh, this forms spores that uh, are resistant to um, many cleaning agents or disinfecting agents, and even, in, as we'll talk about, um, some hand hygiene agents. Um, and they again, the environment persists there. Uh, they can also contaminate reusable medical equipment, and that's certainly important. Uh, historically, we've focused really just on the patients who have symptomatic infection. There is increasing recognition of the role of asymptomatically colonized patients and overall transmission, Uh, Antibiotics are the major preventable factor, and avoiding uh, their use when unnecessary uh, is a key prevention strategy. Uh, Antibiotics make the patients more vulnerable to infection and,
0: and probably also more contagious when
1: colonized.
0: So that, that that makes sense. Yes, yeah, something that that comes up as I think confusing to many people is the issue of colonization versus uh, infection with with Clostridium difficile. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. In in probably most hospitals there's um, at least as many more, if not several fold more patients who are asymptomatic and colonized. Than who become infected and develop symptoms. So think of that every time you have a patient who has C. difficile infection with symptoms, that there may be many more around who colonize. Uh, both infection and colonization increase with increased exposure to inpatient settings. You know, again, harking back to the fact that it's uh, person-to-person spread uh, through the fecal-oral route of the spores. Um, Antibiotics uh, may also increase the colonization as they do infection, um, and most uh, patients who are successfully treated for C. difficile symptomatic infection remain asymptomatically colonized for many weeks thereafter, and
0: that can have important implications for uh, what we do with the prevention. That, that, that's a good point. And I guess the issue of colonization really impacts the importance of uh, being ju- judicious in who to test, not over-testing, uh, because that would lead to essentially false positive results, Can you, as well as testing after uh, finishing treatment. Uh, can you address that a bit? Who should be tested and what tests should be done?
1: Sure, Neil, that's a major point of the guideline, first, I want to say that no diagnosis, diagnostic test result by itself can tell you that your patient has C. difficile infection. Instead, it really is a clinical diagnosis based upon a compatible clinical picture combined with a positive test, uh, test result for C. difficile or its toxins. The most important symptom to look for, of course, is unexplained diarrhea, defined as three or more unformed stools, and that is stools that are taking the form of, a, of the container they're contained in over a 24 hour period. Um, historically, more stringent criteria were used for uh, both the duration and number of unformed stools that were recommended uh, before, test, before testing. However, as you know, we've had this continual shortening of duration of hospitalization, requiring faster diagnosis, and determination of patient disposition, um, combined also with the emergence of more severe cases of C. difficile infection, especially in the last decade, in the previous decade, uh, or since the year 2000. Uh, These together have led to the current recommendation of of who to test. Uh, Regardless, though, many patients who end up being tested in, in healthcare facilities uh, for C. difficile infection may not even fulfill these criteria. For example, one study found that 19, 19% of patients undergoing testing for C. difficile infection were at the time receiving laxatives. So um, the the major decision then, um, once you've confirmed that this is unexplained diarrhea, is, is um, what tests uh, to use. Um, we uh, have, and and that really centers around uh, whether one will use a nucleic acid amplification test uh, that detects the presence of a toxin producing organism uh, through finding you know basically uh, DNA uh, for the toxin um, whether that'll be used alone or whether it'll be used um, with an or or whether this or another similarly sensitive screening test known as the gdh uh whether they'll be uh, used alone. Uh, Or in combination with a test that detects toxin in the stool, which is usually an enzyme immunoassay for toxin B. Um, So, along with, as you alluded to, along with being more sensitive, uh, the nucleic acid amplification tests are more likely to detect C. difficile in patients who are only colonized and have diarrhea for other reasons. And therefore, uh, the use of uh, these nucleic acid amplification tests alone may lead to overdiagnosis among patients who have a low pretest likelihood of C. difficile infection. So, our guideline ended up really putting the decision of whether to routinely test using a nucleic acid amplification test alone or to use a toxin test like the EIA as part of a multi step algorithm to put that decision first and foremost, at the institutional level, depending upon the test ordering practices at the institution. Um, And really what we recommend is that uh, the clinical community come together with the lab and and look at their testing practices um, and who's being tested, and then come up with a decision of what tests to routinely offer.
0: They really make uh, clear the importance of careful test ordering. A part of that is in a patient who uh, you think may have C. diff because of risk factors and who has diarrhea, um, do they need repeat testing if the initial test is negative? And that goes a little bit to the sensitivity of the test for detecting C. diff. What are the recommendations around that?
1: Yes, our recommendation is not to retest uh, within seven days uh, for uh, really any patient because if they're positive, well, we know they're going to remain positive uh, and you're going to be treating them anyway, If assuming that you ordered the test in the right population. If they're negative, uh, because we're, we're talking about here either using the very sensitive nucleic acid amplification tests alone or using them or something similarly sensitive in terms of an algorithm in combination with a toxin test, because both recommendations do have that negative, that, that high negative predictive value, uh, we are saying in general, um, do not re-t- retest patients uh, with a negative uh, because we're using these uh, approaches with high negative predictive value. Um, and all you do is by retesting them is now you're um, you're doing that whole thing where you're subsequently testing again and again in patients who are even have lower um, pretest uh, likelihoods of C. difficile because they've already had a negative result. And so you'll end up just running yourself into a
0: false positive that way. That's helpful. And I think that's a critical point for people to understand and often a difficult one. Um, can we Let's now go on to discuss infection control. What's recommended with regard to infection control to decrease the risk of transmission, uh, including what are the recommendations around uh, hand hygiene?
1: Sure. Um, As I already alluded to, our our recommendations remain centered on the symptomatic patients with C. difficile infection, um, uh, isolating them in a a single room, if at all possible. If not possible, uh, cohorting them with uh, patients who have uh, the same organism, um, uh, using uh, contact precautions, uh, gloves and gowns. Uh, in the care of those patients, and also very important is that they use uh, a dedicated bathroom facility or a bedside commode uh, to prevent uh, cross transmission that way. Um, there are also um, important aspects of cleaning to be aware of, uh, thorough cleaning, um, and then use of uh, sporicidal disinfectants um, are recommended if, as an aug- uh, to, as, uh, to augment uh, cleaning especially when rates are high. Uh, We take that same approach around hand hygiene with regard to a a usual recommendation um, is to continue to use alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Now, it's acknowledged in the guideline and and all over that alcohol does not kill C. difficile spores. But again, we're talking here about using gloves um, routinely for the care of these patients. So we're talking about the hand hygiene to practice after removal of gloves, and again, uh, although there's the theoretical concern that um, the alcohol will will somehow you know miss the C. of seal, the main issue is the glove use, um, and of course uh, there's many other aspects to think about here for for patient care too, um, and so we know historically that uh, compliance is so much higher with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And the evidence just is not there to say that that reverting to uh, hand washing routinely will draw will lower your rates over alcohol-based hand sanitizer, or the or the converse is, has not been shown either. We've never really seen data to suggest that switching to alcohol-based hand sanitizer historically uh, drove uh, C difficile rates, um, and and so the routine recommendation is still alcohol-based hand sanitizer upon glove removal. But if uh, you have high, sustained high rates or an outbreak, uh, both in the case of using sporicidal disinfectants and in the case of using um, uh, hand washing after removal of the gloves, that is something to consider. Again, we, we recommend those things in that situation because uh, they do have the theoretical uh, benefit uh, of, over and above the usual practice, whereas the usual practice uh, has certain advantages um, both, well, just in the care of patients in general and uh, proven practice uh, for compliance. to, to improve compliance.
0: That, that, that makes sense. It seems like a really pragmatic approach that acknowledges the reality of clinical care, sometimes the difficulty of getting to sinks as much as we would like to, uh, the benefits of hand wash, and and also acknowledges that uh, optimal practice is hand washing, but absolutely essential is uh, alcohol-based uh, hand uh, you know hand hygiene. Um, yeah, after gloves. Yeah. I mean, we have to emphasize gloves. Of course, gloves, good. Really. Yeah good point. Now, a question that comes up a lot is for patients who have established C. diff infection and are then treated, when can contact precautions be stopped?
1: Well, this is also a somewhat tiered recommendation, if you will. Um, First of all, the standard mentioned in in here now is 48 hours after uh, cessation of diarrhea um, and uh, then um, Also uh, mentioned is that uh, rates are remaining high to consider um, uh, keeping patients in isolation uh, for the duration of hospitalization. Um, That is, of course, not something you can translate easily to um, long-term care facilities, um, but um, it is something that can certainly be implemented in acute care hospitals, and many hospitals might even be doing that routinely already, but again, because of the fact that patients do remain uh, colonized um, after a successful treatment, even after diarrhea has ceased, uh, this is a population to consider to keep in isolation. As, again, especially if uh, rates are not uh, coming down as as intended.
0: That makes sense. Now, before we move on to treatment, let's just touch on uh, another aspect of prevention. Uh, Is there any role for probiotics?
1: Well, this is something that the the committee really struggled with because we do see, as as several uh, meta-analyses have pointed out, even a recent Cochrane review, that there is this signal that suggests that uh, probiotics might have a preventive uh, role. But uh, we really do not have the evidence necessary to to re- recommend a specific probiotic at a specific dose in a specific way. So the guidance just is is not there yet uh, that would be necessary to 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 use them effectively.
0: Okay. Let, let's move on to treatment, which I think is the, uh, in in many ways, the largest change that this guideline presents, and uh, the large change is the recommendation use oral vancomycin rather than oral flagyl as first-line treatment for uh, C. difficile diarrhea. Can you go over the now-recommended treatments of an initial episode and the rationale behind those recommendations?
1: Certainly, uh, it is uh, oral vancomycin uh, or uh, uh, oral uh, Um and uh, the doses I won't go over here, but they they're listed um, um, in the in the guideline and um, the um, uh, pocket guide. Um, th- the, the decision to move metronidazole back to a second line was uh, was really based upon recent evidence from studies uh, that were published since uh, the 2010 guideline. Of course, in the 2010 guideline, re- recall that it did recommend uh, in severe C. difficile, uh, the vancomycin be used over metronidazole, and that had been shown in a couple studies. But then a large uh, um, a randomized controlled trial uh, did show that even across the entire population of tested patients that vancomycin had uh, improved cure rates over metronidazole, uh, so that is the reason uh, why metronidazole was moved uh, back um,
0: uh, as an alternate uh, agent if uh, the others are unavailable. Unfortunately, recurrent C. diff infection is common, and so, therefore, uh, we're commonly asked what to do about recurrent infections. In fact, about a quarter of patients treated for an initial episode with vancomycin will eventually have one additional episode. Uh, What are the current recommended approaches? What are the options for recurrent C. diff infection? Well,
1: first, if if metronidazole was used in the incident
0: case, then...
1: That should not be used again, and a standard 10 day course of vancomycin rather than a second course of metronizol should be used. Uh, If uh, the first uh, the the incident case um, was treated with a 10 day course of vancomycin, then there are two options. One is uh, to use a 10 day course of fidaxomycin if vancomycin was used the first time, uh, or Uh, treat that first recurrence uh, with vancomycin again, as oral vancomycin, as a tapered and pulse regimen uh, rather than just this standard 10-day course. So you can see where we're we're trying to move forward uh, alternate uh, approaches early on with the first recurrence, whereas in the previous guideline, which is the statement was always just use the same drug again for 10 days.
0: Yeah, I've, I've found the pulse uh, recommendations interesting, that idea of uh, perhaps killing the spores as they come out over time by using intermittent or pulse dosing for uh, a long period of time that can be, I guess, up to eight weeks. Um, that's right, that's right. And then then, what are the recommendations for patients who have multiple recurrences?
1: Yeah, so we, we do have other options there. Again, um, emphasizing what you just said, the, the oral, uh, therapy with vancomycin tapered or pulsed, uh, a standard course of oral vancomycin followed by Rifaximin, um, or again, uh, the, f- uh, fidexamycin. Uh, finally though, there is also now on the scene fecal microbiota transplantation, and it is in fact uh, recommended in this guideline. Uh, for patients with multiple recurrences that have failed uh, appropriate EMBOC treatments.
0: That's fantastic. So uh, we've really covered a lot of material here. We've covered infection control. We've covered in detail diagnostic testing and the importance of uh, testing the right people, of course, uh, and not over-testing, and then some important changes in the guidelines with regard to treatment of initial infection uh, and treatment of uh, recurrences. It, it, these are really well-formulated guidelines. I'd recommend that uh, everyone read them because it's a critically important topic to, for all of us. Uh, Dr. McDonald, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, this was a, a wonderful overview of the guidelines. Thank you. Thank you, Neil, very much. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thank you for listening.